Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is an audio version of the video version that goes out live at 3pm British time every Sunday on our YouTube channel, a science Q&A, a different topic each week, always hosted by Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Different guests each week. As such, bear in mind there might be a couple of moments that are more suited to the original visual format, particularly in the show and tells at the start. But that shouldn't hamper your enjoyment too much of this podcast version. And also, since it goes out live as well, everyone's on different broadband speeds, different microphones, different settings. So there might be a couple of little bits of audio dropout or echo or the random things that one encounters when doing something live over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. You all know how finicky doing these video conferencing things can be by now. If you want to support the show, help us keep making it each week, keep making it free for everyone. You can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and support us on there and get yourself various rewards and goodies and exclusives for doing so as well, including two Patreon-only podcast documentary series, an uncanny hour which looks at some of the overlooked gems and oddities of culture, like why humans continue to believe in alien visitation via UFOs and the films of John Carpenter and David Cronenberg, as well as our latest series, Tips for Existence, which is Robin Ince in conversation with scientists and artists about searching for meaning in a meaningless universe. Some guests on that show include Brian Green and Tim Minchin and Neil Gaiman and Andrean and Nicole Stott and Chris Jackson, Carlo Ravelli and lots more as well. And now, here is this week's episode of the Science Shambles Sunday Q&A show. Hope you enjoy. Hello, welcome to Sunday Science Q&A. And uh, now it's, 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 it's summertime, so uh, I'm in a really summery cardigan, as you can see. Um, and uh, today's, if you've not been to, to the Sunday Science Q&A before, by the way, just uh, uh, well, I'm always joined by Helen Chersky, who you'll see in a minute. Uh, and uh, also today, our special guests are Tony Ryan, who a very frequent guest on Infinite Monkey Cage, who I've suddenly realised we haven't actually had on for ages. And we had a wonderful, uh, one of my favourite episodes where uh, we had him on with uh, Billy Bragg when we were in Glastonbury, uh, which was a fantastic episode to do because doing it in a tent in Glastonbury uh, meant that none of us could actually hear what anyone was saying due to the distance between us all and the noise of Newton Faulkner in the background. So everyone was just kind of guessing their science, which made it very, very exciting. Um, also, our other guest today, first time on, is uh, Ella Alchemar, who has written this fantastic book, uh, The Handshake, which we're going to talk briefly about as well. Uh, that book has just come out. Uh, and to tell you a few things that are coming up, uh, on Friday, we're going to do a live show, Uncanny Hour show uh 8:30 p.m with uh dallas campbell and uh, johnny mains and natalie k thatcher and very special guests as well we're doing uh, a celebration of our favorite strange horror books and uncanny books and books of weird tales unexplained magazine i have there james herbert's the lair uh third mayflower book of uh, black magic things like that will uh, also somewhere there we there we are and the novelization of hawk the slayer all of them as we know uh scientifically literate works um another thing as well to say thank you 
very much to anyone who nominated us for the Chortle Award that we got last week, the Lockdown Legend uh, Award, where we joined lots of uh, other lovely people who got Lockdown Legend Awards. Thank you very much for that. Uh, you can support us via Patreon. If you don't support us via Patreon, but you might be able to, that is fantastic. It means that you can listen to all of our shows, like the Uncanny Hour series that I do with Stuart Lee and Alan Moore and uh, Reese Shearsmith and various others, Mark Kermode, and uh, also the Tips for Existence show. And this week, there is a free uh, edition of Tips for Existence for everyone with Carlo Rivelli, whose new book, Helgoland, uh, is, is magnificent. And we had a long discussion, really more talking about kind of the nature of humanity than uh, quantum mechanics, because a lot of other people are covering that quantum mechanics area. Um, and uh, also, it's a double science book channels this week. Uh, we have got Ginny Smith and uh, Melanie Challenger on. So watch out for that if you've got any questions then you can either leave them in the live chat or just tweet them uh to us at cosmic shambles and uh, the final thing to tell you is next week's guest on easter sunday uh we will have brian green joining us who wrote one of my favorite science books of last work last year which yeah. was until the end of time so let's go straight over to um helen helen how are you I'm I'm doing very well. I'm so unre I'm reasonably excited by the fact it's getting dark at 7:30 now. I genuinely forgot the clocks were going to go forward until uh, producer Trent emailed me yesterday because <laughs> you know reminders are useful. And I'm so excited that it gets light later. So you know it's the small things. Anyway, so I've been looking back at uh, science this week in history, and there's there's a sort of thing that you have that you have to you have, you have to do some things when they come along, and it is. Um, Almost exactly 68 years since the famous 1953 Crook and Watson paper was published with the structure of DNA. It's a one-page paper. It's very famous. Everyone knows the story of Crook and Watson, so I don't want to talk about that. What I want to talk about is the other things that were in the same edition of Nature, because the way they wrote uh, their, uh, their articles then was they just kind of ran on one from the next in columns. And so at the top of the DNA paper, you can see something about a research ship. So I went nosing around in what the research ship uh, was, and then I got dragged into all of what they were saying in 1953. So it was published on April Fool's Day, uh, but I'm assuming everything in there is legitimate. So the first thing is it's got this amazing six-page op-ed ranting about the state of science funding in Britain, which, you know, is not entirely unusual in the modern world. And they're talking about government priorities and the government saying it wants to be a science... Uh, you know, power powerhouse in science and nature and the fact that it hasn't built enough houses and uh, the state of all these research facilities which have since been built. So that's quite good fun. Um, and then there's various other things. There's there's a review of uh, the Contiki expedition um, where Thor Herdal sort of crossed the Pacific and then people... It, took it to mean the wrong thing in, in retrospect but anyway so the book of that but the, but this thing this paper on the ocean which was actually i think really important is just before the one before the crick and watson paper is um it's about measuring ocean currents by uh using the fact that because seawater is a conductor and the earth has a magnetic field you then have a conductor moving through a magnetic field and as anyone who knows their electro uh, conduction will know that means a current is generated if you measure that current you can measure the electric current you can measure the speed the physical water is moving at and therefore you can measure the ocean currents as they move through the magnetic field and, and the ocean does have these induced electric fields in it and my favorite part of this paper so this was the first time it had been demonstrated tucked away there in 1953 april the first and they'd actually described faraday standing on waterloo bridge back when he discovered electromagnetic induction saying well this should happen if water flows past and there's a magnetic field i should be able to detect a current and he couldn't detect it some other people couldn't detect it and they could and actually it's it's not the most common technique but it is very useful now in oceanography to be able to measure 
uh, moving salt water moving through the Earth's magnetic field. So anyway, that's that's a, it's a slight sidetrack from the DNA paper, but I was I had lots of fun nosing around in what else they were saying uh, 68 years ago in Nature. Yeah. That's fantastic. I love it. It's like reading the, the Penguin Science News books that used to come out. I don't know if you you, you know those. I, I think they were probably the quarterly. Uh, they might have even, in fact, merely been annually, but they were just like like the equivalent of a book form of a magazine where you read about all the most incredible research in uh, electromagnetism and also uh, toad studies. And uh, a lot of it hasn't aged well, but they were all, you know, they might not have been the shoulders of giants, but there were still some shoulders or at least some toads to stand on. Um, this is Ella. Now, uh, thank you very much for joining us uh your book the handshake let's talk about about that before before we we talk about your show and tell um which is uh it's i'm always intrigued by books which start off by talking about something which is just as you say and this is something we don't really think about and yet at the same time it's something we really started thinking about in the last year uh because suddenly this has been you know the handshake is is no more when did you start thinking about writing this book so actually, I've been a, I've been thinking about the handshake for most of my life um, in quite an obsessive way. But I only thought about the book. It wasn't actually my suggestion. It was my um, my one of my agents was like, "Look, you, you've been benched from all your expeditions. Um, you need something to do. We're looking for an archaeologist to write a book about the handshake. How do you feel about that?" And I just started laughing because they had they hadn't quite clocked on to the fact that I had not shaken a man's hand for the first twenty six years of my life or probably did but like only two or three men's hands um and i just thought you have no idea how obsessed i am with with this topic so i was i was raised in a very kind of um conservative uh orthodox muslim community um and we just followed the strictest interpretation of muslim law on interaction between the sexes um and and i guess one of the side effects of that is i I mean i'm a paleoanthropologist but one of the side effects is that as an anthropologist i always kind of you know, I live in two different cultures and obsess about things. So, you know, something like a kiss, for example, I would have seen um, if, if my parents had uh, had had their way, I would never have known what a kiss was, right? Because they're very conservative. Um, and so I, as a teenager, instead of, you know, kissing, was obsessed with the anthropology of a kiss. I was like, well, would I, if I'd have been brought up in a village in Yemen, have innately known what a kiss was if I'd never seen it on television? Because, you know, there was no television of that ilk. Um, and so in a similar vein, when the when the handshake disappeared and everyone started obsessing about it, I was like, hold on, guys, I've, I've, I've been thinking about this for a while. <laughs> Give me a second. <laughs> um, and it was just it was wonderful because, you know, um, the amount of science which you can kind of synthesize and bring together to come up with this theory that the handshake isn't cultural, it's biological. is just I just thought it was wonderful and chemo signals and all this other stuff um, that kind of I cover in the book. It just it really excites me. See, there's something very interesting to to me that because a lot of people I think wouldn't really know. But in terms of your curiosity, so in in one way you're in in a, in a very traditional environment where there are things you said you're not seeing kissing, handshaking's not happening between the sexes, etc. But you are in a you know how did that affect the curiosity that's led to the studies that you do now, led to the career that you have? What were the restrictions, and in fact, what were the things that might surprise people in terms of what you were able to study? So actually, I would. So the thing is, there was never really any restrictions on what I could study. The intention was the problem, Robin. <laughs> so when I went to university at 18 to study, you know, genetics and evolution, 
I genuinely thought I was about to destroy Darwin's theory, which is deeply embarrassing, obviously, for me now to admit to. Um, but at the time, I was, you know, I mean, that's the paradigm that I existed in. Everybody thought, you know, or a lot of people thought <coughs> that, you know, it, it was all made up and it was highly flawed and all the rest of it. Um, and so obviously, you know, very quickly I was like, oh, that, that Darwin fella's got a really solid theory. <laughs> <laughs> this is a slight issue. Um, so it's not so much that I was restricted from, from studying stuff. It was more that I would see stuff in the way anthropologists, for example, in my department at UCL, will go to a different culture and will see everything as the other. I lived in a community in Birmingham where everybody was the other, right? My own community was the other, um, the kind of the secular community was the other. So I just, I would just think about everything in the way that a, an anthropologist would and just, you know, obsess about things which... You know, as I said, you know, as a teenager, I should have just been doing the kissing. <laughs> it was just just constantly thinking as to why we do things. And I think for me, one of the most fascinating things that um, that I, I kind of I talk about in the book with well, a few things, actually. One is um, the fact that Dr. Kat Hobater, who's a brilliant primatologist out of St. Andrews, um, I mean, we've known that chimps shake hands for a while, but she was able to document what the chimp handshake means. And it basically has the same meaning as our own. It's positive, it, it kind of has varied meanings, but they're always positive. And she has wonderful footage of these two chips kind of going into a fight, really going at each other, and then kind of sheepishly walking up to each other and kind of giving each other uh, a finger shake, um, basically essentially saying, let's make up, let's make amends. And it's just absolutely marvelous. And you think, well, okay, if the chips are shaking hands, if the bonobos are shaking hands, if we're shaking hands, it's not, it's not you know, far-fetched to say that's by descent. And then if you look at the functional use, the, the uses for the handshake in terms of functionality beyond symbolism, that's when you start getting some really interesting science because of things like chemo signals. So, of course, you know, we like to think that we are we've evolved our way out of being animals. But actually, you know, we still communicate with each other chemically. We just don't like to admit it. And I mean, for me, chemo signals is just one of the most fantastic things because it happens on a subconscious level uh, or an unconscious level. But um yeah, just the so there are all these experiments. They put gauze under people's armpits. They got them to watch, you know, films that were either happy or sad or you know other emotions. And they took the gauze to a different group of participants, and the micro expressions reflected on their faces aligned. Um, and there's all these other experiments that they did, kind of just fantastic experiments, collecting like women's sad tears and giving them to men and seeing, you know, different responses. Absolutely fantastic. But um, it, it does suggest uh, that you know chemical signals are an important way in which we communicate. And the Wiseman Institute in Israel was able to demonstrate that the handshake itself, you, you transfer chemo signals, so it's a vector system. And uh, using hidden cameras, they showed that people are more likely to touch their, significantly more likely to touch their faces um, after a handshake um, than before. So they're basically taking a sniff in. It's so just... two, two COVID black marks there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't like handshakes. I don't like most of these things. I find that because people grab your hand very quickly. So a lot, a lot of men do this. A lot of men go very quickly for a handshake, and I don't. I don't move that fast in a handshake. So then you get that handshake, and then you have to redo the handshake, and then oh, grubby. Anyway, the uh, we will. Cat uh, Hobater, actually, I should mention, was on our uh, episode of Monkey Cage with Jane Goodall and Bill Bailey as well, and uh, and she was fantastic on that. As was uh, Jane Goodall teaching Bill Bailey how to speak chimpanzee. It turns out he had totally the wrong dialect initially. And um, we will come back and and do the show and tell sure, Sean. I want to go, go over, over as well, as well to Tony, Tony now. Tony, uh, so uh, what have you got for us? What well, a couple of things. One is uh, is desert gardens, which is uh, growing 
food in refugee camps using repurposed mattresses where uh, I was taken to a refugee camp by a friend of mine um, who's a dress designer, Helen Story, and uh, I was there in Zatry refugee camp and I was given a brief of, of female sanitary health because the, all the products are really expensive and they're actually quite easy to make and, and because of my plastics knowledge, I know how to make them. Um, and we were doing stuff with bicycles and they took me into a warehouse that was full of mattresses and said, and we've no idea what to do with these. And it was like I was in hog heaven uh, because I'd just started a PhD student who was making polyurethane foam as uh, a growing substrate. So we could we could get away from um, in greenhouses, in commercial greenhouses using mineral wool. Um, and use polyurethane foam because you can really tweak the chemistry to encourage a microbiome. And so uh, so it was great. So I fetched some foam back. Um, we grew some tomatoes in it, uh, tested the tomatoes to make sure nothing had leached out of the old mattress. And then we were able to turn all these old beds into new beds, into green beds for people to grow things. Um, so kind of that's a, a really homespun linking frontier research with kind of helping people. Um, and then it, it's turned into a massive co-creation project where we've learned as much from the refugee Syria fa Syrian farmers about how to grow things in form as we've taught them. Um, and, and mainly because... Uh, bit like Ella, they were like super skeptical. You know, they're Syrian farmers. They know how to grow stuff. What's this What's this silly fat professor doing telling them about polyurethane foam? So it's been great. Uh, so I have pictures to show you and stuff. And, and then the other thing I'm obsessing about is um, what? how do we solve the plastics problem, right? You know, um, so, you know, everyone's a really good recycler, but none of it gets recycled. Um Less than 1% of all pl all the plastic ever made has been recycled more than once. And only 12% of all the plastic ever made has been recycled. And we make 300 million tonnes of plastic a year, which is the same mass as the current human population. But more frighteningly, in the 50 years we've been making plastic, and this is one for the anthropologist, yeah, we've made 8 billion tonnes of plastic, which is more than all the people that have ever lived, if you weigh them, right? And, and it's just so embedded in our lives um, that we need to do something really, really radical about it. And what I want to do has come to me through teaching a first-year course. So I, I teach a course called Chemistry for Sustainable Future, where I teach about the evolution of farming and biological energy systems and human energy systems and decarbonizing the grid and all sorts of things. And it made me realize that actually the easiest way to sequester carbon from the atmosphere is to turn it into plastic. And the best carbon sequestration technology we have is photosynthesis. And all the food we grow, we only actually eat 10% of the plant and 90% is left on the field or burned. And if we could turn that into plastic, then we could bury a 
billion tons of carbon dioxide a year as plastic. And if we curated it, because it's highly refined, we make new fossils, which I've called neo-fossils. So I want to turn us into a generation of fossil makers, not fossil burners. Brilliant. That's fantastic. And we were the, the, both the things that both of you have been, been talking, talking about, about there are things, things we, 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 we kind of, of need to do whole shows on, I think. Uh, and and so we will, Che, if you're up for it, I would like to, to we better get down to the question now, but both fascinating answers. And uh, let's start off. I'm going to start off with a question from last week. Uh, and uh, Helen, this is probably I'll start off with you because this is uh, not your Christmas lecture, but it's related to uh, uh, someone you did them with, Tara Shine. Uh, David Collins says uh, she demonstrated that it may be possible for humans to use technology to remove co2 from the atmosphere and store it elsewhere probably underground so also tony this is one which you can expand on as well uh, i may be living in dreamland but if that were to happen with the huge amount of co2 currently dissolved in the oceans start to move back into the atmosphere as a keen diver i want to see this happen so as to reverse the acidification of the oceans but of course this will reduce the effectiveness of atmospheric co2 reduction efforts and maybe reduce enthusiasm for such projects so what do you think then? <laughs> It's, a it's obviously a complicated question. Carbon capture and storage is being ta talked about a lot. There, It makes a lot of people nervous because the first thing is stop burning stuff. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. And so the biggest worry of a lot of people thinking about this is that if people go, oh, well, we'll just put it all somewhere else, then it gets you out of the moral hazard of actually changing the system. So the first very, very, very important thing to say is this is not a substitute for moving away from fossil fuels. That has to happen, get over it, do it now. And the next thing is that if you want to be anywhere near the Paris climate targets, the way that you can't shift a, a, a global infrastructure that quickly, and so taking some carbon out of the atmosphere then becomes um, unnecessary. You know, you have to do it because, because the, the game is net carbon, which means you can emit a bit if you take some back. Um, on the question, and then it comes the problem of where you put it, and I am, I hear what Tony says. I would like to hear more about it. I do not think that's the solution for various other reasons, because I think the world, the world is about recycling. But when it comes to the ocean, so the ocean is a massive store of carbon. There are 60 times more carbon in the water column than there is in the atmosphere. So if you, t so basically the, the ocean is the buffer system. Um, and because of the way the ocean stores carbon, it's not as simple as you put some carbon in and then that much is carbon is dissolved. It sort of undergoes chemical reactions on the way it becomes carbonate and bicarbonate and it's all a bit, it's a bit of a mess. So in principle, yes, if you, the biggest driver, so what my, my research looks at um, air sea gas exchange and the amount of gas going from the atmosphere into the ocean, the biggest driver of that, above everything else, is the concentration gradient. So overall, it mostly it goes down anywhere where there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than there is in the ocean, and it goes up, which is and this happens near the equator when that's true the other way. So the concentration gradient is the biggest driver. Um, the difficulty is that a lot of the carbon that gets put down gets moved further down into the water column. So there are places in the ocean where you get downwelling, and so. Um, water masses which are gigantic things which are already carrying carbon then get carried further down and basically you're not going to see them for a thousand years so it would re it would remove carbon from the surface ocean um but it would not remove the stored carbon now you might say well that's fine because the stored carbon is now all somewhere else some point later it's going to come back up <laughs> so you do have that problem as well so basically it's we need carbon capture and storage it is not a substitute for stopping burning stuff 
but you have to be super careful in how you do it. It's not a straightforward problem. Um, and so, yes, it would let the oceans off gas a bit, but it wouldn't exactly solve the problem immediately. Now, it's really complicated. This, Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm excited by this because Notice I noticed during that answer that there was a, a pugnacious movement from Tony in his chair. So, Tony, <laughs> let's see what that pugnacious movement was all about. So, so, so the, there wasn't a pugnacious movement. <laughs> I just, I just look like a pugilist anyway. Uh, so the. Um, so the kind of simple answer to the question is if um, if the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere goes down, then then the, the carbon dioxide in the upper part of the sea will repartition. It's kind of basic undergraduate chemistry. And the detail of that, Ellen knows a lot more about than me. Um, so that's the that's the kind of first response. You know, the breathe, breathing works because you're, there's a concentration gradient and and. Uh, and you know you can do those calculations. We know the Henry's law constants and all those sorts of things. Um, actually, I, I might even set it as a as a first year physical chemistry question next year. Um, the pugnacious part was was around um, carbon capture and sequestration um, because uh, most of the technologies you hear about and the, and they're in the they're in the Paris Accord um, and they're all basically. Hans Christian Andersen. I mean, they're, they're fairy stories. They're, they're not. They're not technologies that will work at scale. Um, and we need to do some really, really different things. And so, um, I'm sure we'll come back to to plastic. And, and marine plastic is a horrible thing, um, and we shouldn't let it escape to the sea. Uh, but there are there are ways of dealing with carbon dioxide. Um, but sucking it out of the air in big capture factories ain't going to work and collecting it from smokestacks is doable but it comes at a big energy cost and i agree with helen completely utterly and absolutely stop burning it brilliant thank you both uh now uh ella i'm gonna we've got a question from uh jenny uh which is uh about the uh out of africa theory uh jenny says i was reading an article recently that said mitochondrial dna puts the origin of homo sapien much further back and indicates that the australian aborigines arose 400,000 years ago from two distinct lineages far earlier than other racial groups is it possible that out of africa could now be entirely wrong or maybe humans evolved twice independently um, so I'm not 100% familiar with the exact, I'm not 100% familiar with the exact thing that she's just mentioned. Um, I wonder, I mean, what I will say is, generally speaking, you don't trust mitochondrial DNA on anything kind of older than, I don't know, 100,000 years, just because it, it's just, it's, it's, it's just not useful for that. It's nuclear DNA that you're looking at. Now, in terms of out of Africa, um, there are constant headlines, uh, so that's what she might have uh, caught, um, kind of challenging aspects of the out of Africa theory. Now, I think most of us still think the out of Africa theory is a really, really uh, a very solid theory, um, but that there's a lot more going on. So we think, um, so, you know, this is it's a very strange situation because this is the first time in our history that only one species of human has walked the earth. Um, and we are, interestingly, not just Homo sapien. You know, we have other species in us because 
when we left Africa or even in Africa, there were other species of uh, Homo around at the time. Um, so, you know, if, if you look at the parts of the Pacific, for example, um, you know, there's a lot of Denisovan DNA in, in people in that part of the world. Um, obviously, everybody outside of Sub-Saharan Africa, you're looking at significant amounts of Neanderthal DNA. Um, so I think out of Africa stands, I think most people would say out of Africa stands, but it's just a looser out of Africa to the out of Africa we understood 10 years ago, because we now accept that we were mixing with other species. Um, and certainly Australian Aborigines, I mean, there's no, there's no question about them being completely homo sapien, uh, just like the rest of us. Yeah, it's such a it's such a fascinating thing, isn't it, that little over 10 years ago, still all the articles were oh no no, no we, there was no interbreeding and then suddenly and, and it feels you know read books from 2008 you'll still see there may be a very small number of people who will have now everything changed. and that's the beautiful thing uh, about science is that uh, most books once they're 10 years old are rubbish um that by the way is not true but uh, i just thought i'd say it for effect uh this is uh, now jill's got a question here i think I, i'm not sure who i think i'll start with you on this Alan. this is um if a serious earthquake can move the earth on its axis is it possible one could change the earth's orbit uh, right, so this is to do with mass distribution, distribution. And, and spinning and all those sorts of things. So the yeah. Earth is not touching anything else and there are conservation laws that apply. So the amount of um, rotational energy that it has is fixed, basically. And so the distribution of weight within that shape determines how it spins and how things move. That's one thing. Um, so earthquakes do make very, very tiny shifts to some of these things. Um, I don't think they would shift an orbital period enough to make any difference. They might shift the axis of the Earth a tiny, tiny bit, but I don't think it's enough to make a difference to anything. So I don't think we have to worry about any new seasons. Um, it's, it's something you can measure if you happen to be on Earth, but I don't think it's got any large scale consequences. See, I was reading something the other day, which was I can't remember which book talking about the fact that, you know, once uh, when when the sun reaches that stage, which will mean that the, it appears that the planet Earth is no longer able to have uh, complex life living on it. But this in this book, it was by a scientist said that there was a possibility that we could take the uh, uh, power from uh, meteors or comets, I think. And we could slightly alter our orbit so we could slowly build our way further away from the sun. I think by that point, you're talking so far ahead that humans have either annihilated themselves or turned themselves into something else. <laughs> well, that's what the thing is. As I was reading it, it just there were so many things there. It's very interesting when you sometimes talk to some scientists who always talk about us as if we are always there. So that when it gets to the point that the sun swells into all of those things, that somehow we survive the next 4.5 billion years. And I'll ask that to all three of you, actually, which is, it intrigues me that. It intrigued that rather than say, to be honest, we're not going to be the things that are going to be around. Uh, it's going to be, if it is anything, it's going to be something else. But it seems that for some people's scientific narrative, they need to constantly believe that we are still, you know, when the earth comes to an end, we're in some kind of microchip version or whatever the future is. You know, we, we are distributed as pure information, as, as a future Wi-Fi signal, whatever it might be. Why do you think that narrative is so important? for for people i've got a very quick answer which is just that i think it's really, I think interesting, it's really interesting because all of the history of science has been making humans less important right the copernican system you know the earth goes around the sun 
we're just another animal. You go through evolution, all these things where we're just another non, not particularly interesting version of, of something. And yet, and that's that's what science has done. That's the scientific viewpoint. And yet, as you say, it's really interesting that it is scientists who then still carry that last bit of we are the most important thing that must survive, despite all of the history of science telling us <laughs> that that's probably not going to be the case. So I don't have an answer, but I think it is, we're, we're, very, we're very arrogant as a species. Ella, what do you reckon? So I have to say, I think scientists are quite mixed in their approach. I think some, some do talk like that, but some don't. But, I, I, you know, I kind of mentioned just earlier that we're, we're the only species of, of human left on this planet. And I think human exceptionalism is such a fascinating thing. We really do think we're exceptional. We think we're special. We think we're different and separate from all other animals. Um, and that's mostly a complete fallacy. But it is interesting how we turned up on the scene as Homo sapiens and all the other species, you kind of just disappeared. Um, and does that speak to something special about us or destructive about us? Heaven knows, uh, but it's absolutely fascinating as what, what on earth happened <clears throat> for us to be the only ones left. Now we've been around for 300,000 years. As far as species goes, that's, we're still doing all right. You'd expect a little bit longer. <laughs> But then, you know, you, you would expect us to evolve into something else, you know, a few hundred thousand years down the line. Um, but again, the question is, because we're such a, we, we, we're so bizarre in some ways as a species, you, you wonder what that will look like. Yeah, mm. I, I mean, like, honestly, it's, it's, absolutely, it's absolutely fascinating for me to think that the others all just disappeared. What happened to them? Tony, what do you think? Because I, I, I sometimes do worry about when we hear, and, and I think very often it's actually at the publication of a book when you will have someone who will give you a grand dream, like the point where we terraform Mars and then that's going to be fine. We need to get to other planets. And you think, well, hang on a minute, if we destroy a planet that's actually really good for life, then the idea that we're going to say, it's fine. Our mindset will have changed so much that we can terraform another planet. And sometimes I worry about some of those kind of, the, the, those visions that they might allow us to push away some of the more pressing issues so so i think in this context arrogance and exceptionalism are one and the same thing right so you know we 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 are intrinsically arrogant right it's kind of part of the of the current human being um and, and yeah we are really destructive you know our inventiveness and and our lack of foresight and i, I don't mean foresight in in being unwilling to foresee but just the unintended consequences you know i opened the paper this morning and um and there's someone predicting that sperm counts will have fallen to zero by 2045 because of endocrine disruptors um i mean it blames um molecules from plastics which kind of belies you know small molecules that come from plastics which kind of belies a, a fundamental lack of understanding of where these chemicals come from but but undoubtedly, you know, reproduction rates are falling. Um, so, you know, things are going in the right direction in terms of the pressure on the planet. But the, the thing I always say to people who want to save the planet is the planet's going to be absolutely fine, mate. <laughs> it really doesn't care about you um, and, and your concerns, right? You know, we need to leave it alone to kind of get on with its business. Um, so I, I, I do take a sort of Gaian view of this that um if for whatever reason we put ourselves out of existence uh through our arrogance and exceptionalism 
um, then the, there will be other species come along. And uh, it'll matter for those people who were there at the end for the weeping and wailing, the gnashing of teeth, but kind of in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, gnashing of teeth's not good either. <laughs> with that. I'm going to go straight to another question, which I think is for you, Tony, which is I don't even know what this means. It's, it's, uh, this is from Roger. Is milk a colloidal nano? Um, so milk is definitely colloidal. So, so a colloid is a suspension of particles that's stable. Um, and so the fat globules in milk are surrounded by proteins and the proteins act like surfactants. Surfactants are soaps. And, and what, the, what the proteins do is they, they give a, a slight charge to the milk, to the, to the fat particles, so that the globules can't come together. Um, and so when, when milk goes off, then basically what happens is, well, there's, there's some infection and that destroys the surfactants that stabilize the fat globules and the milk goes sour and can separate. And, if you, and when you make butter, you, know, you shake the milk really, really hard and that overcomes the, the steric and electrostatic repulsions between those particles so they can come together and make bigger fat particles and then the big fat particles are less dense than the water and they cream, go to the top um, and separate. So, yeah, milk is colloidal. Uh, but if it was nano, you'd be able to see through it. So it's definitely not nano. It's micro because the fat globules are bigger than the wavelength of light, scatter light. And that's why it's white. And if you get skimmed milk, if you hold it up to the light, it looks faintly blue because they've skimmed off all the biggest fat globules and just left the smallest ones behind. Uh, and you can actually see the light scattering. Can I just add to that? So in, in the, the 1953 edition of Nature that had the uh, DNA paper in it, the first article of, there are only five full articles. Um, the third one is the DNA one. The first one was called Microsomal Particles of Normal Cow's Milk. Um, nice. And I didn't read it. But, because I was too busy with the others, but now I wish I had. Yeah, we'll both read that now then. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> oh, isn't it nice to go back to old nature and think, oh, this is what the future used to be. Uh, this is uh, this is from Timothy Ella for you. Uh, Timothy was reading your article in The Guardian this week and uh, was interested in knowing uh, something you said you didn't touch on, which, of course, is probably because you couldn't put the whole book in there, but is uh, about the leading with the right hand. Uh, in shaking hands is this just because left-handedness has been culturally stigmatized this is actually fascinating i do go do cover it in the book um so i speculate that right-handedness is so right-handedness anthropologically is across the board um in most cultures seen as positive seen as good seen as godly not just our abrahamic faiths across the board um it's also seen as powerful um, there's a very, very clear favouring to the right-hand side. I speculate that it's just because we are mostly right-handed as people. Neanderthals are also mostly right-handed. Um, so it kind of makes sense that if you, if one side of your body is prominent, um, you would culturally then therefore declare that that side is the purer side, the good side, the et cetera, et cetera. Sorry to any uh, left-handed people out there. A number of my exes are left-handed and I became very suspicious after a while. <laughs> 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 to what was uh, yeah um but uh, but yeah I, I think that's probably 
I mean, you know, it's speculation at this point, but that's certainly the way I'm, I'm speculating on it. Brilliant. Thank you. A question from last week, and I don't know if anyone will have the answer for this. Uh, it's not an area that's uh, specialization for astronaut Nicole Stott, as we found out. Uh, this is about the different shelf lives of oil. Uh, why can olive oil survive three years and walnut oil only a few months? This is from Mel. Now, this is a question that I'm, I'm again, I'm going to either Helen, have you done any research since last week? Um, I haven't. I do know a bit about olive oil. So olive, so oil, is, olive oil is a bit unusual in all the oils you find in your kitchen. And it's basically only one molecule. All the others are mixtures. Um, and I don't know whether that affects it or not. But that's basically the only thing I know about the difference between olive oil and the other one. <laughs> Tony might know more. Go on, Tony. So I would recommend to the person who sent the question in a book called The Fats of Life. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic book, The Fats of Life. And it goes through all of the triglycerides. Um, so if, if I had have known this question was coming, I would have been able to tell you because I would have gone and looked it up in The Fats of Life. But Helen's absolutely right. So the, the, there will be a component of the triglycerides in walnut oil that's particularly susceptible to oxidation. And it's oxidation of the, the unsaturated bonds, you know, unsaturated fatty acids. So, so the, the, the oil is, uh, is three fatty acid chains on a glycerol molecule. So it looks like the, the tines on a fork. Um, and some of them are, are saturated. So just, CH2, 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 but every now and again, there'll be a, a double bond and you can get one double bond, two double bonds, three double bonds. And the higher in unsaturation, the more likely that those double bonds are going to open uh, with oxygen. And that gives you the rancid taste um, that is oil going off. So I suspect walnut oil is less saturated than olive oil, which is oleic acid. Are yes. you, have you been on Sunday brunch yet, by the way? Because your milk and oil questions have been wonderful. So no, no, no. I'd, I'd actually, I'd love, I'd love to do a, a, a food program. I, uh, I, I did when I did my Christmas lectures. One of them was about the kind of polymer science of food, because um, you know biology is, from my view, biology is kind of polymer science with hydrogen bonds, um, and uh, and so that's food as well. And it allowed me to use the the line I love, you know. Um, uh, all cooking is chemistry, but not all chemistry is cooking. <laughs> Brilliant. So Sunday brunch, get get Tony Ryan on. This is now we've got a, a question for. Uh, well, this uh, perhaps other people have, but I'm going to start with you, Ella, on this. This is from Scott, and Scott wonders: Do you think there's one particular fossil that we could discover that would answer a big unanswered question? Basically, the equivalent of the Higgs of the Paleo world. So interesting. So every so often they have, they have a, a um, you know, what's the holy grail of paleoanthropology? But that's not on, on the scale, scale that, that you're talking, talking about. about. I mean, you're talking, talking about, about a very, very, very different scale, scale together. Um, I, don't I don't think, for me personally, for paleoanthropology, no, not not a um, not a fossil that would answer, answer all the questions, questions just, just a fossil that will, you know, answer certain questions. questions. But um, we, by, by the way, way, they, they did, did find um, a partial mandible um, that was the first kind of very kind of diagnostic and decent um, Denisovan fossil. But as you can see, the scale is very different from what you're talking about, Robin. Is there something, I mean, in, in, in terms of in those, you know, the 19th century days of, of, of fossil hunting and then and also when think we... of, the, of the work of Darwin, etc., uh, that is, is there a point where there was 
maybe not even a single fossil discovery, but a selection of fossil discoveries which changed our picture so much of what life on Earth is that we would consider that to be the kind of Damascene moment of fossil discovery. I mean, you know, Neanderthals were really significant. Finding Neanderthal fossils were really significant because, um, you know, arguing arguing the missing link. I mean, obviously, it was really problematic and we wouldn't use the word missing link anymore and um, term missing link any anymore, et cetera, et cetera. But just finding other species of hominin was really really a big deal because what you wanted to demonstrate was change through time right um so that's been demonstrated but i mean it's interesting yeah but the kind of question is there is there something bigger bigger i mean i don't think so but there's a lot in the question isn't there because that's it's the sort it's of sort question where if you look at the history of science people find a thing and it only ever brings more questions. So there's, there is a, a large part of this, which is that science isn't a static thing. It's not like you find the thing and then the textbook can be written in stone and it never has changed. How boring would that be? The, the cool thing only ever brings more questions because it's got more weirdness in it than anyone thought. That's why you need experimentalists and can't trust theorists to, to, to sort out everything. Um, but yeah, so I think actually it would be terrible if there was one fossil that answered all questions. But I'm quite confident that there won't be because I I reckon there's loads of interesting questions that that fossil would, you know, a, a big find would just open up. So you mean if they found a fossil and oh, this is a fossil of a rib that's halfway turned into a woman and oh, yeah. it is only six and a half thousand years. Ah, <laughs> oh. and I sorted that out. But that, that is the issue, isn't it? Which is. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think there was I, I remember talking to a, a geneticist who said that, you know, the one thing they've definitely got on physicists is they do have a grand unifying theory. But the grand unifying theory actually makes things even messier. Yeah. Whereas and, and I think that's the interesting thing, is it which is what we're very often looking for. And I don't know how it is. It's, it's a bit like, you know, how did the universe begin or, or, or you know, what is the purpose of the, in the end, all the answers that probably science will provide for the people who really want they want a single answer. They want, and whether that's from a religious or mystical or whatever it might be, it's a single answer which won't happen because it will go, that's it, that's where everything starts. And but it's really damaging in society, isn't it? Because people go looking for the magic pill. Like, what's the, what's the thing? You can see it with the energy transition now. It's going to be complicated. But people are like, what's the thing? And you go, no, no, no. There's hydrogen and there's biofuels and there's all these things and the solar. And it's loads of stuff. And people are like, what, what's the thing that's going to win? And it's this, and I think the problem is if you spend forever looking for your hero you just get nowhere because you're waiting for the perfect hero my i probably shouldn't say this but my mother used to have a hi mom if you're listening um my mother used to have this cartoon on the um uh notice board when we were growing up of, of a skeleton a female skeleton sitting on a bench with a handbag uh and it had a caption that was waiting for the perfect man and <laughs> <laughs> which is you know of its time should we say but the point is that you can't wait for the there's not like i'm just going to wait for the perfect thing you have to embrace the mess and go with the mess and that that gets you much further but helen do you think that that is um that is from people who fundamentally either don't understand science or fundamentally are naysayers and don't believe so for example with creationists some of them it's that they don't believe it's not even a, a lack of understanding the scientific methodology it's so they just don't really believe and therefore you know they want the one proof i think i think some of it is that we've done a very good job of conveying the fun of scientific discovery and that when we tell the stories of science we tell them in that format we say oh 
Nista discovered the thing and now we all have the thing, right? And we tell our stories of science in terms of heroes and villains. And I've got a plot I show when I'm giving talks sometimes, which the problem is the complicated stories never get told. And we tell our, you know, we're like, like Einstein invented the thing and then everyone knew. And actually, general relativity is one of the few cases where there was a single paper that stood up to scrutiny for the next hundred years, because normally it doesn't happen like that. But we're very wedded to those stories. So I think part of it's the human storytelling thing that we just want the nice story because it, then it's going to be bedtime. And then tomorrow we wake up and it's a new story. And when in spite of the fact that we're surrounded by loose ends and things that didn't finish and stories that weren't quite perfect, we still want the perfect story. Where is it? I want my perfect bedtime story. And um, so we can close the book and then they all lived happily ever after. And it never happens. But the perfect <laughs> story is always boring. Sorry, Tony. So, and scientists are as guilty as that as anyone, that they, they want the one answer, right? I've just been writing a review article with, with some American colleagues, and I want us to finish with, and this, the subject of the review article, is only part of the solution. And they won't have it because the thing we're writing the article about is their thing. And, you know, why would that only be part? Because they have the answer. So, you know, we are, we are, like Helen says, you know, guilty, very guilty of that. And even if you try and point out to people that, you know, their answer is, is only part of the solution, they'll often be very resistant because everyone wants an easy answer. And if it's your easy answer, even better. But even worse, it's seen like the admission of failure. Yeah, yeah. You don't present the answer. Yeah which is a habit our culture really needs to get out of. Yeah. Like if you get, if you make a step forward, put all the flags out, hooray for you, that counts, <laughs> you yeah. know. But, but isn't that what's in your, your you, know, you said the the editorial was all, all about funding and funding comes when Tony finishes his article and this is the solution, not yeah, this is yeah. part of the solution yeah, yeah. No, or no. this is more complex than you might imagine. It's true. You know, the, the stories we use to motivate ourselves are not the same as the stories of how the world the, the the realistic stories. So I don't know. I mean, uh, lots of scientists have said, oh, well, they should just think differently. But, you know, we've got decades of experience that the media and politicians and just people who don't think about science every day want the story. Just tell us to invent. I mean, it's like the Human Genome Project. People are like, oh, we're going to find the, gen we're gonna fit the genome and then we're all going to know everything. And then they sort of found it. And then they went, oh, this is complicated. We've just discovered <laughs> epigenetics. And <laughs> But I take the point that you needed that big goal to make everyone get to that point but it's only ever a market you have to play the game maybe that's it you have to treat it as yeah, a board yeah, game yeah. where you play the game you use what you need to motivate you now i'm going to win this next badminton match but you know th there's going to be another one so yeah maybe it's just around the framing maybe you're right ella that i'm being too optimistic in terms of thinking that um humans are ever going to stop wanting the perfect answer I don't know. I th I, yeah, I, I think there's, there's progress. I mean, uh, we, are, we are part of the shambles network. If anything conveys the way science actually proceeds, it is shambles. So it's, 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 all, it's all woven in, right? Well, everything exists because of error, doesn't it? Matter and antimatter <laughs> should have equaled each other. There shouldn't be any universe, you know? And if, if life had started to exist, oh, it should have I found a way that replicated perfectly. But that... instead, it mutated, didn't it? And we got all this. So the whole thing is an absolute... Sh if if I'd invented the universe, and I'm not saying I didn't, then I, uh, you know, I'd have come up with a much better system than science. What a mess, you guys. But that and... should have been... Like, that would be a great book, isn't it? Like, t the science book that's, like, where the universe went wrong. Yeah. All the things that should have led to the end of everything that somehow didn't. 
Yeah, the universe went wrong by existing. This was a terrible mistake. Um, this is uh, a question from David. Nice, simple question for you, Tony. Why can't everything catch fire? Is basically David. He says, someone explained to me how some things are fireproof. Why can't everything catch on fire? Why can't everything, everything catch, catch on fire? Uh, well, some things are already oxidized enough. Right. So, so things only catch on fire because they want to react with oxygen. Um, because they go down the kind of energetic hill, release heat. But if you're already sufficiently oxidized, uh, like calcium carbonate, chalk, can't set calcium carbonate on fire. You can turn it into calcium oxide and it'll fizz a bit, but it certainly won't burn. It'll only glow. So, yeah, it's all, it's all about the oxidation potential. If, you, if you're already sufficiently oxidized, you won't burn. Yeah, David, another of our disappointed arsonist uh, watchers yeah, there. Questions about the questioner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, this is one. This is uh, this is from Kay, and uh, she would like to know: Can you explain carbon offsetting to me? So I don't know if you want to start on on this one, or, or uh, which is uh, how is it actually beneficial and not just moving numbers around on a spreadsheet? <laughs> it's very controversial. So sure. the idea, so the idea of carbon offsetting is that if you do something that um, is going to output a lot of carbon, that you then do something else which is going to suck some carbon in on that net zero thing. And the problem with carbon offsetting is that the biggest problem is that carbon is a long term game, and you can do something this week, but, you know, if you plant a tree, the natural world biodegrades after a while. So if you plant that tree and, as Tony said, you bury it somewhere, then it stays buried. But if you let it biodegrade, then all that carbon just gets respired and goes straight back up into the atmosphere. So I think and also the other problem is that with a lot of carbon offset pro projects is that they're a bit simplistic. So a lot of them involve planting trees. And the thing about that is you have to plant the right trees in the right place. You can't just go around planting trees. That is not better than, than no trees. It's that you, know, you have to match ecosystems and actually pay attention and be sensitive to what's going on and not ruin the ecosystem you're planting your trees in. So, um, so if, if you're going to do it, and I think it's not a terrible thing to do on the basis that if you, give, if you use it as motivation to give some money towards a good cause, which is going to improve an ecosystem that's thought out well, that's probably a good thing. And... But it probably shouldn't completely offset the guilt of having used up the carbon in the first place. Now, we live lives where you physically cannot. None of us can live neutral, carbon neutral lives at the moment. It's not physically possible for any of us. So you can't have all the guilt all the time. So, you know, so I would I, I think it's a good motivator to help good things happen. But it is not a magic pill. Right. I'm, I'm going to we've got five questions, got five left. minutes. Got... Uh, Ella, over to you. This is from Shiv, who would like to know if there's one practice or custom that the world would be better off uh, without. Uh, what do you think it should be? Oof. Oh, I don't know. That's really it's hard. A tough one, that one, isn't it? Instead of, instead that, of that, can I say that there's lots of um, handshakes and greetings that have undergone an extinction? Um, and I was tracing some of the ones from the last hundred years. And the penis handshake, the breast suckle, the bum salutation, which is actually quite well known, and the urine wash are four that I am really sad have left us in the last hundred years. <laughs> right, look, you're going to have to run us through those a little bit then. So, uh... so, so a lot of people know that there's been a linguistic extinction, right? So we've gone from 100,000 languages to something like 6,000 languages. Uh, what a lot of people don't realise is we've actually undergone a salutation extinction as well. Um, so in the last hundred years, um, uh, 
penis shakes were a thing. So, so it was either touching a penis in parts of New Guinea, for example, um, but actually there was one tribe in Australia who actually conducted a penis handshake. Um, and actually to, to refuse the shake was a declaration of war and the, 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 the owner of the penis would offer it to the other brothers in that tribe in the hopes that one of them would shake so that they would be on their side. Absolutely fascinating. Um, the bum salutation is actually really quite well known because it was a practice all over the world from Germany to Japan to parts of Africa and there's different variations of that. That could just be kind of like almost turning around and bending over. Some of them it's actually exposing. Um, the nipple suck I found mind-boggling because I had just thought that was a just one tribe doing it, but actually um, it, it, it was practiced apparently in some parts of the Arctic, but um, with one tribe, I believe in New Guinea, um, you would actually suck at the teat of the chief's wife um, as, as a salutation, as a greeting when you first arrived with the tribe. And then the urine wash is obvious. I mean, also that's not weird, is it? Because it's territorial marking, but just absolutely fantastic. So I thought it was really funny at the beginning of um, lockdown when people like you, Robin, were like, ah, oh, so glad that we're done with this handshake. I goes, oh, you poor Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> you have to touch somebody else's part. <laughs> like, all these other cultures, it's like, you know. I mean, even like in parts of the Gulf, you know, not far from where my own family come from, the nose rub is, um, you add the handshake to the nose rub to the hug. You know, it's, it's fully in there. No, Sorry. I'm very all distant person. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, it, I think my main problem with it, and it is with a lot of these things, is that they don't mean anything. That's the bit that I find, you know, where so much of it becomes like so much of our culture becomes something which still exists, but is so detached from whatever it's which, of course, your book deals, you know, but with its meaning. You think, why are we even doing this? That's my main thing is this is a waste of time. Let's get on with it. Just don't like touch. And I think that's completely fair. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's completely legitimate to to not touch somebody who doesn't want to be touched. Leave them alone. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's a, a lot more. The, the whole kissing thing in, in show business can can go as well. Uh, this is uh, Karen Bretherton uh, asks. Uh, we just had this uh, in the live Q&A. Tony, this is for you. She wants to know, regarding the mattress planting system, can you say how you treat the mattress and fertilise the plants, uh, guessing that water may well be limited sometimes in these areas? So the in Zatari, they get 35 litres of water a day. Um, the thing about hydroponics is you can really maximise the, the use of the water by preventing evaporation, by just having a small hole for the plant to grow out of. Um, and you absolutely have to provide fertiliser. Uh, so one of the things, and that's the great thing about working with Syrian farmers, is they know the way around fertiliser. So you have to, to optimise the miracle grow uh, for the local water. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank and this is Angelo would like to know. So how does a ship actually get stuck in the Suez? Is it just <laughs> operator error? No, it isn't. It's really interesting. The Suez Canal. So the Suez Canal was built a long time ago, has been altered since. But basically, it's not very wide. And it's got and this ship is a particularly large ship of a, of a size that didn't go through until very recently. And there's a whole load of interesting stuff here. But the short version is that if you have a ship going through the ocean, the ship pushes water out of the way, but it just kind of goes sideways. There's loads of space for that water to move somewhere else. If you're in a narrow channel, that water has to actually go past the ship behind it. So, and you've got a narrow gap on either side that this water kind of has to squeeze through. Um, and if you get things, if there's more on one side than the other and the water is flowing faster on one side than the other, you get pressure changes, which can then push your ship. So I don't know about the operator error. I don't think anyone knows that at this point. But the fundamental problem here is that um, 
it's actually quite hard to push large things through very narrow, narrow channels of water because you just got to get the water out of the way. And it's really unpredictable. And a little instability can then push the bow one way and the stern one way. And then you've got a ship that is wedged against the bank. So um, there's a lot here about the size of the ships that, that are, you know, that are made on our behalf behind the scenes that we never see and the economics of getting them through. I mean, the, the, the proportion of the world's traffic, ship traffic that goes through the Suez Canal is gigantic and it saves a huge amount of fuel because you don't have to go all the way around Africa. So there's a bigger question about the types of ships and what we expect from them and how cheap we expect our shipping to be, how much it has to get, get transported and how little we expect it to cost that's actually the root of the problem we're seeing thank you and uh, ella one final question for, uh, we just had this live which is uh, someone would like to know more about the sad tears experiment which does sound ethically like as that went through the board how the collection of the sad tears was made could have could be a minefield well it's worth that so basically they uh, they collected women's tears after they were they were they were sad they called them um negative emotion inducing tears you couldn't make this stuff up um and they then showed them they then um presented them to men um uh, in an experiment where some men were exposed to the tears some men weren't but all the men saw uh, were exposed to pictures of women and then they they saw uh, they asked i think it was both they asked the level of attraction, but then they were also testing the level of attraction as well. Um, and yeah, it, it was shown that when the men were also exposed to the tears, they were less attracted to these pictures of women. So the conclusion was um, men are less attracted to crying women. And yes, they got research funding for that. <laughs> it's quite well, I hope that has answered all. We've covered a lot of ground today, I think. Uh, thank, thank you so much for joining us. Ella's book is, it's out now, isn't it? I think it has it's just come out. So there we go, the handshake. Uh, and it's very interesting. Like all the, I, I'm always fascinated by those books, which again are something that is just uh, every day. And then there's so many different stories in there uh, and ideas. Uh, Tony, thank you very much for joining us. Where's the best pit place for people to go and find out about your work? Because I love the work. So much of your work, Tony, is really pragmatic and, and interesting in its engagement. Yeah, there's a there's a neat little BBC video uh, about desert gardens that we made for a program called um, a BBC North program called uh, oh, I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, oh, well, we'll find it and we'll tweet yeah, that. And, and I'll yeah, I'll, I'll I'll tweet it to the Cosmic Shambles. Yeah, so we'll see that. And, I, I do sorry. cry in the film. But did someone collect your tears? No, no, no. Use as an experiment uh, in an experiment. <laughs> Tony's Sheffield tears are like no other tears due to the amount of work he's done yeah, with so yeah, many yeah. different kind of chemicals yeah, yeah. on top of also I'll tell you what uh, there is a man who uh, I've, I've sadly not seen uh, we should have stood together in Glastonbury uh, and watched Billy Bragg sing Tank Park Salute I'm yeah. sure there would have been <laughs> the waterfalls over that one um, thanks very much everyone for joining us uh, Helen Amir back next week as I said it's Brian Green next week uh, who's uh, covered so much ground his his, his latest book's just out in, in paperback until the end of time is is, is fantastic but any questions for uh, for Brian and Helen you start sending them in now uh, I said also our next book shambles is a, a double science as well and uh, on Friday we'll be doing an uncanny hour about various uh, favourite horror books and then our next episode of uncanny hour is Exorcist 3 with uh, Mark Gatiss Mark Kermode uh, 
uh, Reese Shearsmith, uh, Kim Newman, lots of others as well. And uh, so follow us if you can, support us via Patreon if you can, because that makes a huge difference. If you if you want to see the show uh, for free, you can see that for free rather than buying a ticket if you uh, follow us on our Patreon. Um, enjoy your week. Goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Support us at patreon.com slash cosmicshambles. Check out all the other stuff over at cosmicshambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at cosmicshambles or cosmicshambles network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.